Welcome to The Archivist. I'm Jana, and I am committed to preserving the details of crimes that are committed and the lives that are lost. Welcome to The Archivist. Welcome back. So one of the common interests of people that like to listen to true crime podcasts or read them, read books or watch documentaries, they we're all very intrigued by the story of a serial killer. They're very unique. They are very captivating with in many different ways. I mean, they I think that the story of a serial killer satisfies the the curiosity that comes from true crime. When you read a story about a serial killer, you often get, you know, a lot of background information and you learn, you know, maybe some things that happened in their past that could have triggered what becomes this psychological perversion of their mind. And then what I always find interesting is the stories of the detectives that work on the case and narrow it down and find this person and, you know, get into their mind in order to catch them at what they're doing. Or on the flip side, the non-activity, because there's not much that you can to go on. And obviously, as we have gotten further into the 21st century and we, you know, our technology has changed, we are seeing a lot of tools that investigators have not had in the past. And they're able to catch these killers quicker than they ever were. So today, I would like to talk about a possible serial killer. It's a series of murders that took place in Louisiana in the early 1910s. And spoiler alert, I hope I don't ruin this for you, but a person confessed to the crimes, but there is a lot of speculation that she may not have done them. So I'm going to tell you today the story of Clementine Barnabet. Clementine was born around 1894 in St. Martinville, Louisiana. St. Martinville is a suburb of Lafayette, Louisiana. It's a suburb now. Uh, this is a city, Lafayette is a city between Baton Rouge and Lake Charles. Um, probably around this time, Lafayette was maybe a little further away. They hadn't grown into each other, but I think now they've kind of, Lafayette's kind of absorbed St. Martinville. So it is close to the southern coast of Louisiana. It is, there is not a lot that we know about Clementine's early life. We know that her parents are Nina Porter and Raymond Barnabet. Her father was reported to be very abusive to his wife and children. And we know Clementine had three brothers. I could only find the name of one. His name was Zephyrin. And in 1909, when Clementine is roughly 15 years old, her family moves to Lafayette, Louisiana. In late November 1909, in Rain, Louisiana, Edmi Opalusa and her three children were found murdered in their home. They were murdered with an axe, and it was left at the scene and was verified to have belonged to the family. As we get started, I do want to make something known. In today's world, when you hear that somebody is murdered with an axe, their own axe, it is an unusual crime and it attracts a lot of special attention. And these crimes were very gruesome and they were also thought to be very gruesome. But 
around the turn of the century and into the first few decades of the 20th century, hearing that a family had been killed with their own acts was almost commonplace. The city of Austin, Texas had endured several years of axe murders in the late 1880s. These are often called the servant girl annihilator murders. And because most of the women were black servants of the wealthy families living in Austin. In 1912, the Moore family in Villisca, Iowa, along with two neighbor girls, so eight people in all, were murdered in the family home by an unknown killer. And in less than 10 years, the city of New Orleans would be visited by an axe murderer that apparently really liked jazz music. So eventually I will cover all of these stories, but I wanted to just put us into the place and time that an axe murder is not as unusual as it sounds today. So back to Edmi Opelousa and her children. A week after these murders were discovered, a man named Houston Goodwill was arrested for the crime. He had been married to Edmi's sister and this husband and wife had argued about a week before the murders and this argument was so out of hand that Goodwill was told to leave the home. When that happened, he had threatened to kill his wife. So out of fear, Edme and her children, who lived in the house with their father and Edme's sister and husband. So the way the house was, um, Edme's father and Edme and the children lived in the main house. And attached to the back of the house was like an additional room or what they sometimes called a hut. And that's where the sister and Goodwill lived. So after this argument and he threatens to kill his wife, they were very concerned that he would make good on this promise. And so Edmi and her children switch rooms. They go and stay in the little hut and then her sister and their and the other children stay inside the house with their father her grandfather. So the sheriff told newspapers that they thought Goodwill had returned to obviously make good on his threat and did not discover the identity of who he had killed until after he was done. And the case is pretty much just circumstantial. They don't have any evidence. But the sheriff said that they did say they had some additional evidence that the case that it was him. And it turned out to be a knife that I guess they somehow thought they could prove that the knife belonged to him. But there was no details on on how that came to be, that they knew it was his knife. I did not find any details on whether or not Goodwill was convicted. It is nearly impossible to look up articles on a person named Houston Goodwill. Uh, But I am going to assume he was convicted. There is no record of a release. But later... Clementine Barnabet claims responsibility for these murders, which is interesting because it's pretty clear that she wasn't even suspected. Like, nobody thought anybody else did this. The next axe murder that is connected to this series doesn't happen again until January 1911. This time, it is Walter Byers, his wife Sylvania, and their six-year-old son. Uh, They were found on the morning of January 24th, The murders were called the most brutal murders in the history 
of West Crowley. The police had been called and asked to check on the family as they were believed to have been killed. So probably somebody had gone into the house. I'm really assuming that because I don't know why you would jump to they've all been murdered. But anyway, so the police went to the house and they found that the doors were all locked from the inside. And when they got inside the house, they found that an axe that had been used to kill the family was leaning up against the bed. There was a window that was open and they assumed that the killer came in and out of the house through that window. They also found a wash bowl that was filled with bloody water where the killer had apparently cleaned like their hands and face off. The Byers family had been very well liked and respected and the entire city was just completely shocked by this crime just due to the sheer brutality of it. So if we believe that Clementine really did commit the murder of Edme and her children and then the Byers family, she did not lay low for long because four weeks later another family was brutally murdered. This time it is Alexander and Mimi Andres, and they had a three-year-old son, Joaquin, and an 11-month-old baby daughter named Agnes, and they were all found in the early morning by Mimi's brother, Lazim Felix, and all four of the family members had been struck in the head with an axe, and this time, the murderer added to this crime and actually posed the bodies of Alexander and Mimi. They had been on their knees, or they were placed on their knees like they were kneeling to pray beside the bed, and then Mimi's arm was draped over the shoulders of her husband. The baby was placed on the floor beside her mother. Police are able to tell that the family was moved after their murders because of the blood spatter on the bed and walls so they could see where they were actually at when they were hit with the axe. It appeared to the police that the murderer had left the house through a kitchen door, which is where they also suspected she entered. And I am using she here as if the killer really is Clementine. The The bodies of the Andrus family were still slightly warm when the coroner arrived. There was not much evidence for the police to collect, but they immediately suspected a man named Garson Godfrey. Godfrey was a patient or inmate at the Pineville Asylum and officers went to arrest him. Apparently he had a habit of escaping the asylum, but they didn't have any physical evidence to tie him to the scene. And there were people at the asylum that testified that he was there at the hospital the entire time. So after a day, the man was released. The officers did make other arrests, but none of these led to any prosecution. And the newspaper connected the murders of the Byers family and the murders of Edme and her children to this same murderer. And they said, the crimes are so alike that they may be the work of the same terrible monster. And then a month later in San Antonio, Texas, the Cassaway family were found murdered in a very similar way. So the wire picked up a headline that said person crazed and the story of the Cassaway family made its way all the way around the country on April 1st, 1911. Alfred Lewis Cassaway, who worked as a janitor at a school and his wife Elizabeth, their three children, six-year-old Josie, Louise, who was three, and a five-month-old son named Alfred Carlisle, uh, were all found murdered on March 21st. The family was murdered while they slept, and they had all been hit with the blunt side of an axe. The city of San Antonio could barely manage watching a funeral procession 
for five family members. And this time, the killer left muddy footprints in the yard, which led the police to a specific area in San Antonio based on the mud. And they there arrested a man who had once made a death threat against Lewis Cassaway like five or six years before. And the sheriff said the size of the footprints and the type of shoe were a match to what this man was known to wear. There was no forensics then, but the police tried to analyze the mud and they found that they had found on the man's boots and they, you know, compared it to the mud that was found in the Cassaway yard. The mud did also help the police to determine the approximate time the murders happened. They speculated that the murderer entered the home around 11 p.m. before an evening rain shower began. And then they thought that the rain must have started while the killer was in the house because there was no footprints found inside. And then as the killer left, the wet, muddy ground allowed the footprints to be made. Two months later in May, the sheriff of San Antonio, Sheriff Tobin, he received an unsigned letter addressed to the sheriff and the brother-in-law of Cassaway named R.A. Campbell, who had married Lewis Cassaway's sister. And the letter claimed responsibility for the murders, but warned the sheriff not to try to arrest him. So I don't know what the point of the letter was. But anyway, saying he was ready to die and will give trouble. And the sheriff wasn't really sure what to make of this and if the writer could actually be believed or not. The letter was written in ink and they said that the penmanship was very poor. But the letter writer said that he was a white man and he had someone do the killing for him and that person was 300 miles away. He also said that he would kill any person who tried to tackle him or take him. He finished the letter saying, I had a right to kill that family and if you ever catch me, I will explain it to you. Uh, oh, Okay, so the letter brings up a detail that I have left out up until this point. And Lewis and Elizabeth were an interracial couple. I don't think any of us operate under the premise that an interracial couple were greeted with open arms in any community at this time. And since robbery could easily be ruled out as a reason for the family's murders, it's easy to see why the letter would cement the idea that this was a hate crime, although that phrase did not exist at that time. In August 1911, police arrested a man named William McWilliams. One newspaper had him listed as 70 years old. And I'm like, is that real? Is that a misprint? I couldn't find it anywhere else. He was a white man who was related to Lewis Cassaway. He was charged with the murders of the entire family and he was given a bond of $100 for each family member and he could not make the bond so he would went back to the jail. He he di- he didn't get to get out and he stayed there until his trial. He pretty much drops off the radar at this point. I couldn't find much more about him. So this makes me think that uh the charges were probably dropped and he was not prosecuted. Now we're getting to the point where Clementine shows up. But first, in October 1911, Raymond Barnabet, who was Clementine's father, was arrested for the murders of the Andrus family. Clementine and Zephyrin testified in court that their father had come home between 2 and 4 a.m. the night the Andrus family was killed. 
they said that he was in a rage and he had forced his wife and children to get out of their beds to help him hide the evidence of the murders. Both Clementine and Zephyrin said Raymond had come home with blood spattered all over his clothes, hands, and face. Clementine was forced to wash the clothes and Raymond threatened to kill anyone who told his secret. Raymond Barnabet was found guilty pretty much on this testimony alone, and he was sentenced to the death penalty for the commission of the most inhuman and fiendish crimes ever perpetrated anywhere. And then in late November, while Raymond was in jail, another murder happens. On the 25th of November, Norbert Randall and his wife Azima, plus their four children, eight-year-old Albert, six-year-old Renee, Norbert Jr., who's five, and then two-year-old Agnes. They were all found bludgeoned to death in their beds with one new element. Norbert was shot in the head. The sheriff was suspicious of the Barnabet family and immediately went after Clementine and Zephyrin. He arrested them both and two others for the murder of the Randall family. The police then searched the Barnabet home and found clothes covered in blood and brains that belonged to Clementine. Later, a doctor examined the clothing and testified that the blood and brains were human. Then, shortly after the arrest of Clementine and Zephyrin, Raymond Barnabet wins an appeal that he should get a new trial because he was drunk at the time of the first trial. After Raymond wins this appeal, they have to transfer him back to the jail, which is the same place that Zephyrin and Clementine are being held. And Clementine is scared to death of her father and tells the police that she's afraid he will try to kill her. So the police make arrangements to keep them separate while they're in the jail together. Even while the three Barnabets are in prison, there are still more murders that occur. The Broussard family who lived in Lake Charles were killed and the this time the killer left a message written on the wall. It's reported in blood and it's also reported at, that it's written in pencil. The sentence left says, when he maketh the inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. And this is a verse from the King James Bible, Psalm 9:12, And this gave the police the idea that the murders were the act of a gang, which later came to be called the Human Five Gang. Now, there is no corroborating evidence that this gang actually exists. But while all of this is going on, in April of 1912, Clementine confesses to the murders of 17 people. She gave the names of accomplices, but police did not believe that these were real names. They tried to run some of them down and just came up against brick walls. The district attorney was certain that she was guilty and a sanity hearing was ordered. Once the murders were connected with um, hoodoo or voodoo, the papers just began to focus on this religious element and it almost became a satanic panic situation where any sort of religion that wasn't part of the mainstream that was mainly practiced by the black community in Louisiana was looked at with a lot of skepticism. In her confession, Clementine said that she had bought a voodoo charm that would protect her while she committed a crime. She said that she disguised herself as a man so that people wouldn't notice her while she was out in the evening. Once she was disguised, her and her accomplices drew lots or 
straws or whatever to decide who would do the murders. And she told the detectives that she only killed the children because she did not want them to be orphans when their parents were killed. Uh, So then don't kill their parents. Like I said before, the prosecutor was convinced that Clementine was being truthful and that she really had committed these murders. But the detectives did not believe it. They reminded the prosecutor of her easy ability to lie and the performance that she gave on the stand at her father's trial. And the sheriff pointed out that none of the accomplices that she named could be found. And this was all thought to be part of you know, this elaborate lie with false name. The Human Five Gang could not be substantiated and there were murders happening even while Clementine was in jail. Clementine claimed to belong to a church called the Church of Sacrifice, but this was not a real thing. There was a reverend, Reverend King Harris, who was a popular preacher in a church called the Sanctified Church. Reverend King was brought in for questioning, but he was found to not be involved. The public was sufficiently freaked out over this religious angle. There are many that believe that Clementine's naming of the church as the Church of Sacrifice is maybe a twist or a play on the name of the church, the Sanctified Church. But there's no way to know for sure. The District Attorney Howard Bruner filed official charges against Clementine for the murders on April 14, 1912. And while she was in jail, she conf- continued to confess to more murders, eventually confessing to 35. But her story changed so much and so often, it's so hard to know if any of it is true or false. Which murders she may have actually committed and which she didn't. And just exactly whose blood and brains did she have on her clothes? I do think that she committed some murders and maybe only one, but we don't know. Her defense attorneys tried to use the argument that she was insane, which seems to be fair because a person in their right mind would not confess like this. And on a side note, I am certainly not saying that false confessions don't happen because we know they do. But this is a completely different type of false confession. This is more deliberate. It reminds me kind of of what like Henry Lee Lucas did of just trying to confess to anything and everything to get more notoriety. Clementine was convicted and sentenced to life in prison and she was sent to the Louisiana State Penitentiary when she was 19 years old. In July of 1913, she attempted an escape, but she was caught the same day and sent back to prison. She was reported to be a model prisoner other than this one escape attempt. There is a weird note to her story. After 10 years in prison, Clementine was released on good behavior. It was said that she had underwent some sort of procedure, not a lobotomy, because those would not be performed in the U.S. for another 10 years. But whatever this procedure was, it restored her to her normal condition, whatever that means. It seems kind of possible that they didn't think she was guilty And that's why they were willing to let her out after 10 years. After she is released from prison, she literally disappears. No one knows where she went or when she died. She likely changed her name after she was released. And that is all we know about her. And that is a wild ride. Like I said, I don't necessarily think that she committed all of the murders that she confessed to. Um, I know she was very scared of her father and it's possible that she confessed to these murders in order to be sent away to prison in order to escape 
the abuse that she was subjected to. Now, I mentioned at the top of the show the Texas Servant Girl Annihilator and the murders of the Moore family in Villisca, Iowa. There is a theory that there was a serial killer operating in the United States that was traveling around on trains and then stopping and murdering people in different areas. This is a very possible And I think that some of these murders were a part of that series, and then some of them were not. My theory on Clementine is that maybe her father, Raymond, did actually murder the Andrus family, and Clementine and Zephyrin then murdered another family to use this as a way to escape the abuse of their father. So... I don't know. We don't have a final answer on this one. It's still a question. You may have to let me know what you think. But that was the story of Clementine Barnabet. Serial killer? I don't think so. The Archivist is a production of Three Sisters Crime Squad. 